Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, good evening. Tonight we're going to go through first part of Exodus, um, dealing with the Hebrews' departure from Egypt. In the Old Testament, what event is referenced the most? And I gave it away telling you what we're talking about tonight. One might assume that it would be the fall or perhaps God's covenant with Abraham, but the exodus from Egypt and the first Passover is the most referenced. If you include allusions, the Old Testament references back to the exodus over 200 times. Uh, mostly with the phrase, brought out of Egypt. We first see references to the Exodus as a foreshadow in Genesis 12. Abram went to Egypt because of a famine. The Pharaoh and his house was afflicted with great plagues. And then Abram is sent away. Furthermore, when God makes his covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, he tells him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment onto the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The Exodus, or at least the basic story of it, is known by nearly everyone. Unfortunately, our own culture gets in the way when reading Exodus, and we bring misconceptions into our understanding. So let's read through the departure from Exodus with the cultural lens of an ancient Egyptian and Israelite to grasp the full meaning and significance of the event. First, we need to place the Exodus in history. The book itself doesn't give any dates, nor does it mention who was ruling Egypt at the time. The departure from Egypt happened at 1446 to 1445 BC, depending on how you count. And we get that year from 1 Kings 6.1. In the 480th year of the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Egypt, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So next we determine when Solomon was king. And this is done by figuring out when he died. Once that year is established, you just need to add 40, the length of his reign according to 1 Kings 11, to determine the start of Solomon's reign. How do we calculate when his death was? Uh, We do this by looking at the records of Assyria. We have 261 years of continuous records that mention the names of kings and important events that happened in each year. The Assyrian records mention Ahab and Jehu and their rules. From these dates, the chronology in 1 Kings can be tied to the Assyrian one. Connecting the Assyrian records to our modern Gregorian calendar is done by calculating solar eclipses. An eclipse happens at set intervals and thus can be calculated with accuracy, both looking back into the past and into the future. So if you want to see when the next eclipse will happen, you can thumb through five millennium canon of solar eclipse by Fred Espinac and Jean Muse to determine where and when uh, eclipses occurred from 2000 BC up to 3000 AD. It's a pretty dry read though, so... 
Um, but contained within those Assyrian records are recorded years of when there was solar eclipses. So we cross-reference those with those records with ours, and it gives the date of 970 for the start of Solomon's reign. Subtract 4, um, because they mention it was 480 years from his fourth year. Add 480, and there you're at 400, I'm sorry, 1446 B.C. So this is where we're now going to have conflict with the secular world and its understanding. Many secular historians believe the Exodus took place in 1280 B.C. and that Ramses II, also known as Ramses the Great, was the pharaoh. They claim that this is the date of the Exodus because they need it to fit with Ramses II being king. But if you make Ramses II the pharaoh of the Bible, you need to break the biblical timeline of Joseph living in Egypt with his brothers and the length of enslavement. It also creates issues with the conquest of Canaan. So if it doesn't work with the biblical timeline, why insist on Ramses being the Pharaoh? Exodus 1.11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramus. So they claim that the store cities were built under Ramses too. However, the Bible says that the Israelites built the city during their enslavement, not at the start of the Exodus. So remember that Moses was 80 years old at the start of the Exodus. If you go back 80 years, Ramses II was not king. It would be Seti I. They also believe in a late-date Exodus because they do not believe that the Edomites mentioned in Numbers 20, who refused passage to the Israelites, existed during the 15th century and they claim that they must have encountered them later. Another claim they make for the late-day exodus is destruction layers found in Palestine. They claim it dates to 1230 B.C. and is the cities of Lachish, Bethel, Debir, and Hazor conquered by Joshua. However, there is not archaeological evidence that it was the Hebrews that did the destruction, nor does the Bible claim that those cities were totally destroyed the way that Jericho was. Finally, one of the main arguments the secularists use for the lack of physical evidence of the Hebrew enslavement in their exodus. Um, the lack of physical evidence is easy to explain. The ancient Egyptians were not good at recording history. They didn't write histories the way we do or even how the ancient Romans did. We know that on April 12, 58 BC, Julius Caesar didn't allow the, the Helvidi to cross through Roman territory in Gaul. We know that this would lead to further conflict in the Gallic Wars. We know that the Romans didn't win every battle in the, in the uh, Gallic Wars. And this comes from the Romans' own pen themselves. However, with the Egyptians, they would only record battles that they won. They would never record a loss. If a pharaoh's son died, they wouldn't record it. They would simply stop listing that son's name on lists and documents as they, as they had done before. Ancient Egyptians only recorded good things that happened to them. Because of this, you will never find any document referring to slaves plundering the wealth of Egypt. You will not find mention that the firstborn across the land died in one night. You will not find a record of the army drowning in the sea. And another reason for the lack of physical evidence is the land where Goshen lies. Goshen is in the Nile River Delta. It would flood every year. It's marshy, and it has a low water table. It's difficult to find any archaeological evidence in the River Delta, biblical or not. Excavations are not made there because of how difficult it is, 
Once you go down a few feet, you're now submerged in water. Because of how marshy it is, cities and buildings have sunk through the years, and new settlements were built on top of it. Most of what we know of the northern kingdom of Egypt is from records left outside of the Delta region that have been carved on tomb walls, temple walls, or written on papyri. How do we know that the Hyksos defeated the Egyptians and ruled northern Egypt? It's not from any evidence in the Delta. We know it from records discovered outside of the region. There very well could be physical evidence of the Hebrew enslavement left behind, but we have no way of discovering it. So I beleaguer the point that Ramses II is not Pharaoh. It doesn't really matter who the king was at the time for us to understand God's power in the Exodus. It could have been Tutmosis II or III or Amenhotep II or even Amenhotep IV, depending on how much you uh, compress the Egyptian chronology, which there is also good, a good argument for doing. Remember that the Egyptians did not keep good and accurate records. They would have multiple kings ruling at a time and would also retroactively destroy records and kings lists to fit their narrative as the ruler of Egypt. Uh, I personally lean towards Tutmosis II. He only reigned for a short amount of time. He didn't have a, force, a first son, son a firstborn son succeed him, and Egypt had a sudden collapse collapse in power and wealth under his reign. Uh, Regardless of who the pharaoh was, though, it wasn't Ramses II. We've been conditioned by our culture and society to accept that. However, if we do, we denigrate the story of the Exodus from example of God's power to a myth of a people's religious and national beginning. If we accept Ramses as Pharaoh, we accept that Egypt continued to be strong and prosper after the Israelites left. This is in stark contrast to the Bible's teaching that they were punished for the enslavement of the Hebrews. I want you to forget about Joel Brenner and Charleston Heston. Forget about the depictions of Moses and Pharaoh growing up together and jockeying for power. Forget about the idea of a young or middle-aged Moses leading his people out of Egypt. Let's read through Exodus uh, chapters 1 through 12 without our cultural baggage and look at it from the perspective of ancient Hebrew and Egyptian eyes. Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Here we see the 12 tribes of Israel come out of Jacob's son. They have become prosperous and have grown into a large contingent of people. They are no longer a single family. Exodus 1, 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramos. Um, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now we see a partial fulfillment of God's prophecy to Abram. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Because of the massive growth of the Hebrew people, the Egyptians now try population control. They instruct the midwives to practice infanticide and murder any males born. They refuse, and God rewards them for serving him. Since the midwives won't cooperate with the Pharaoh, he commands all that is living in the land to kill every son that is born to the Hebrews. This command would have been given between 1529 to 1526 B.C., since Aaron was born three years before Moses. Moses is born, and we all know, was floated down the river and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. She names him Moses because I drew him out of the water. Moses sounds similar to the Hebrew verb to draw out. She drew him out of the water. Moses can also be an Egyptian word, Moses. Think back to the Pharaoh's names we discussed earlier. Tutmosis and Ramses. Moses means is born. So Tutmosis means Toth is born. Ramses is really Ramosis. We've just sort of anglicized it. And uh, Ramosis means Ra is born. So his name is a pun that works with his Hebrew blood and his Egyptian upbringing. He is both drawn out of the water and is born of the Pharaoh's daughter. And while Moses was raised in an Egyptian household, he did not forget, nor was he under any illusion, that he was an Egyptian. Exodus 2, 11 through 15. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So clearly, Moses considers himself a Hebrew. He was angry with the Egyptian for beating and mistreating a Hebrew. Rather than wait for God's judgment, he takes matters into his own hands, literally. Notice how he looks around first before killing the Egyptian. He knows what he's doing is wrong, but he does it anyway when he thinks he won't be caught. As it turns out, his crime was not a secret, and he flees Egypt to save his life. Forty years pass with Moses living in Midian, shepherding flocks and raising his family. During his time away, the Pharaoh died and the Israelites were still kept as slaves. They cried out to God for deliverance. While Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, God appeared to him through the burning bush. Exodus 3, 7 through 22. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, 
the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jesuvites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But God said, to, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Moses drags his feet and makes excuses as to why he shouldn't be the one to do this. God shows him signs and lets Moses use Aaron as his mouthpiece. Moses gathers his family and they make their way to Egypt. God tells Moses to demonstrate the miracles to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Notice from the outset, God is warning Pharaoh of the calamity that will befall him if he does not heed his command. It also demonstrates that the tenth plague was not a last-ditch effort by God to free his people. It is the inevitable outcome and punishment for mistreating God's people and defying his will. What is also uh, overlooked in the narrative is that God instructed Aaron. Oftentimes we focus on the burning bush and the miracles performed by God through Moses that we skip over God's instruction to Aaron. Exodus four twenty-seven through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the people, all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Notice how their reaction to hearing God's word and seeing his signs is to worship. Likewise, we need to do the same in our lives. After meeting with the elders, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh to tell him what God instructed them to say. Pharaoh responds, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. In Egyptian society, the Pharaoh was not only their leader, but was considered to be a god. Again, think back to the Pharaohs we discussed in the beginning. Their names were literally Thoth is reborn, Ra is born, inferring I am Ra. They considered themselves to be a god and had absolute rule in Egypt. Moses and Aaron telling him that the Lord commands him to let the Hebrews leave was an affront to him and upended the hierarchy of their society. Pharaoh was insulted and angry. Not only did he refuse to let the Israelites go, he increased their workload. Instead of just making bricks, the Hebrews would have to gather and cut straw for their bricks. Quotas would remain the same. Naturally, this upset the Israelites, and they complained to Moses for making their lives more difficult. Uh, Moses, in turn, cries out to God, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. What a very human response to the situation. But wouldn't we do the same? God has made a promise, but it wasn't fulfilled immediately or in the manner we expected. Um, God had even told Moses while in Midian that Pharaoh would not listen to him, but would only let him go after God strikes Egypt. God in his patience assures Moses that he has heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and have I have remembered my covenant. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God instructs Moses to return to Pharaoh with Aaron to speak for the Lord. Once again, God warns Moses that Pharaoh will not let the Hebrews go and that his heart will become hardened. They have an audience with the Pharaoh and once again ask to leave Egypt. Pharaoh tells them to prove themselves by working a miracle. Exodus seven ten through 13. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the, mag the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Secular Egyptologists such as Bob Breyer of Long Island University will explain away all the miracles performed by Moses and Aaron and the acts of the Pharaoh's magicians as tricks. For example, he cites modern-day snake charmers that he encountered in, G in Egypt that would make their snake stiffen to make it look like a walking stick. 
Uh, And he claims this is what Aaron and the court magicians did. However, the Bible clearly states that it is not trickery, but real power wielded by the magicians. English translations are split, about half saying secret arts and half saying enchantments. The Christian Standard Bible takes it a step further and renders it as occult practices. For the sake of time, we're not going to completely read through Exodus 7 through 12, but rather we're going to describe each plague and how it was not random, but rather a calamity that targeted Egypt's gods, power, wealth, and livelihood. The plagues were a physical demonstration of God's authority and power over this world. They were to show the impotence of God, the gods of Egypt. Our culture presents the plagues in rapid succession with one immediately following the other, making it seem like the period took place over 10 days. Forget about what you've seen in the movies. The period of the plagues took place over the course of months. We know from the depiction of the destruction of the fields by the hail in the seventh plague that that occurred in late January, early February. We also know when the last plague takes place since God institutes a new calendar for the Hebrews to coincide with Passover. Exodus 12, 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This first month is known as Abib in Exodus, but is later renamed Nisan during their captivity by the Babylonians. Nisan falls between March and April of the Gregorian calendar, meaning that at the very shortest, the plagues took place over three months. The first plague, water turned to blood. The Nile was life for the Egyptians. Without it, Egypt would be desert. The Nile is the source of Egypt's food, water, clothing, and transportation. The water would provide fish. The regular flooding would bring rich nutrients to the fields for their crops. These crops would feed the nation and be used to make their clothing. The Egyptians didn't wear animal skins or use woolen products. Instead, they'd wear linen that they made from flax. By turning the Nile to blood for seven days, people were cut off from drinking water. They were denied water for irrigation, and the fish died. To prove that this is not a natural phenomenon, such as an algal bloom, God also changed the water in the Egyptians' pools, ponds, and storage containers. People had to dig to find water to drink. Many of the Egyptian gods were also connected with the Nile, such as Happy, the spirit of the Nile, and Osiris. This plague showed that God had power, not the Egyptian gods. The second plague, frogs. Again, we need to leave our culture behind. In American cultures, frog is seen as icky or as a negative. Think about screaming mothers when their wild sons slip a frog into the house. However, in Egyptian culture, the frog was seen positively and was a good sign. To them, frogs represented fruitfulness and an assurance of a harvest. This is because the flooding of the Nile would bring nutrients to the fields, and as the river retreated, ponds would be left behind that would then be inhabited by frogs. The goddess Heket is depicted as being a frog and was their goddess of fertility, both for humans and for crops. By inundating the country with frogs, God showed that he is in control of nature and that Heket is false. He took what the Egyptians regarded as good and made it a nuisance and disruption. The Pharaoh's magicians were able to manifest more frogs, but they were unable to make them go away. 
It took the power of God to have the frogs die out. The third plague, gnats. This is the last of the plagues that were performed by God through Aaron and his staff. This is also the last time the magicians try and match the power of God. They attempt to bring and take away gnats, but are unable to. Uh, Just a side note, you may may have grown up learning the third plague was lice. Uh, That's how the King James translates it. However, almost every other English translation uses gnats. Um, Regardless, it's real small insect that's annoying. That's the point of this plague. Um, This plague, it would have humiliated the priest class. uh, They were known for being physically pure. There were daily rites performed by a group of priests known as the pure ones. They would have all the hair on their body shaved off. They washed frequently and dressed in very beautiful, clean robes. Being covered by biting insects would most definitely take away that purity. In addition, by having the whole land covered and gnats not going away with the priest's prayer shows that they have no real power. The fourth plague, flies. With this plague, uh, this is the first one where it's just the Egyptians that are afflicted. Goshen and the Israelites are not touched. This is also the first plague where God acts without an agent on earth. Moses tells Pharaoh the words of the Lord. He refuses, and God makes good on his promise and brings flies. The Hebrew does not expressly say flies. The word is swarms. Um, We get the translation flies from the Greek Septuagint, which, if you remember your history, was made in Alexandria, Egypt. So there's a good chance that that was most likely referring to flies since those translators were living in that area. And they translated the Hebrew word swarm to dogfly. With this plague, Pharaoh capitulates, and he agrees to let the Hebrews go and make their sacrifice, but he demands that it be done his way. Of course, Moses does not agree, so Pharaoh uh, claims uh, that he will uh, give him his demands, which he does not. So that leads us right into the fifth plague. The Egyptian livestock die. Like the fourth plague, this one is conducted by God, after Pharaoh ignores the warning to let the Israelites leave. Let my people go, that they may serve me. He is told to do this by the morning of the next day. If not, your livestock that are on the fields, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks, will will die, but the Hebrew animals will not. Remember the phrase, in the field, that will come back into play with the seventh plague. This plague demonstrates that God has power over Egypt's economy and that their wealth cannot save them. Livestock was used to plow fields. Horses were used for their chariots and provided military might. The cattle was used for milk. The loss of those animals would have been devastating. In addition, it shows the weakness of Hathor, the symbolic mother of the pharaohs. This goddess was depicted as a cow or as a woman with cow horns on her head. Depictions of her nursing the pharaoh were not uncommon and represented his right to rule. The death of so many cattle would show her power as null, and likewise, by association, the pharaoh is weak. The sixth plague, boils. Instead of just relaying God's word to pharaoh, 
Moses now performs a physical action to bring the onset of a plague. He is instructed by God to take soot from the kiln and throw it in the air in front of Pharaoh. The soot then becomes a fine dust over Egypt, and the Egyptians and their animals break out in sores. This is one of the more symbolic plagues. God takes what was an instrument used against his people, the kiln used to make bricks, and has the waste of the kiln inflict suffering on the oppressors. It also shows the weakness of their gods of healing and medicine, such as Isis, Serapis, and Imhotep. The seventh plague, hail. Again, God sends Moses to deliver a warning. Exodus nine thirteen through 21. Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servant and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have, been, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. In case Pharaoh and the Egyptians didn't comprehend what the plagues were demonstrating, God clearly states to them that he will exert his power over them their false gods, and their idolatry. With the plague of hail, there is no preventing it by letting the Hebrews go. It is a given that it is going to happen. However, out of mercy, God gives them an opportunity to lessen the blow if they heed his warning. Beside the destructive power of the hail, this plague would have been terrifying to the Egyptians. It doesn't rain in Egypt. Remember, if it wasn't for the Nile running through it, Egypt would be a barren desert like the lands immediately to the east and west of it. In addition to the hail, lightning would strike and burn the land. All their current crops, the flax and barley, was destroyed, but the wheat and emmer, which was still in the ground, was left to survive. Remember our plague timeline. The growing cycle of these crops is how we determined that it was late January, early February. The hail also struck down any man and beast in the field. People use this detail to say that there's an heir in the Bible. They'll say, didn't all the livestock die in the fifth plague? How do they have any animals left? It is not a contradiction. The fifth plague said all that was in the field, meaning animals left in the open. Those in stables or or indoors were spared. In addition, it's also not unreasonable to think that after the loss of so many animals that the Egyptians would not have brought more Uh, cattle and animals in from neighboring countries. There are records of Egyptians bringing herds in from Libya and Syria. So with this display of God's power and might, Pharaoh finally admits that he is wrong. But as soon as the hail is withdrawn, he goes back to his wicked ways. Exodus 9, 27 through 28, 
and 33 through 35. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The Eighth Plague, Locust Swarms of locusts were feared in Egypt. They knew of their destructive power. According to the famous Egyptologist Pierre Monte, Egyptian peasants would frequently pray to a locust god in an attempt to keep them away. Locust devastating effects are still felt today. In 2019, there is a, the start of a locust outbreak in East Africa and Southern Arabian Peninsula. And in a year's time, the locust swarm affected 2.25 million hectares of land. They are incredibly destructive, and the Egyptian people knew that. Note the response of Pharaoh's servants when Moses and Aaron warn him that if he does not let them go, locusts will come the next day. Exodus 10:7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh tells Moses that they can go, but that their children need to be left behind. Pharaoh still doesn't get it. He thinks that he can bargain with God and be in control. Because he does not listen to God, the locusts come over Egypt and ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh then calls for Moses and Aaron and admits that he has sinned and begs for the locust to be removed. God casts the locust into the sea, and once the calamity is gone, Pharaoh again refuses to let the Israelites go. The ninth plague, darkness. Here's another example of God's power. No warning is given. No option to let the Hebrews go will avoid this plague. The three days of darkness was to demonstrate God's power over all the false gods and idols of Egypt. One of the most revered gods was Ra, the god of the sun. By withholding light from Egypt for three days, God showed that Ra does not have control of the sun and that his power is worthless. In addition, uh, Thoth, the moon god, would have been rendered useless as well, since no light, no stars, or no moon shone over Egypt. Only over Goshen and the Hebrews was there light. What a powerful and visual example that idolatry will only bring darkness, while the worship of the Lord God is light. Again, Pharaoh tries to bargain, capitulating, saying that they can take their children, but they have to leave the livestock behind. God doesn't want a little obedience. He wants the full obedience. Which brings the tenth plague, death of the firstborns. 
This takes place after the first Passover feast. We will not discuss or go into the details of Passover, as that's a sermon all up to itself. But here God informs Moses that their time in Egypt is coming to an end. Exodus 11, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. God is reminding Moses that he foretold that these events would happen when he was in Midian. He's also instructing the people to gather up the wealth of Egypt to take with them. Exodus 12, 29-32 At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all of the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there is not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now we see the fulfillment of God's promise made in chapter 3. Pharaoh is compelled to let the Hebrews go after being stricken by the Lord, and the people were able to take riches from the Egyptians simply by asking for it. Notice how Pharaoh asks to be blessed. He finally acknowledges that God is the Lord. He admits that he is not the one with the power. What conclusions can we draw from the Hebrews' departure of Egypt and the ten plagues? The first is that God always honors his covenants. His hand guiding the Israelites out of Egypt fulfills both a covenant to Abram and to Moses. We also see that God's power is supreme. He has power over the earth, all the creatures that dwell on it, and has power over life itself. We see that idolatry is empty, vain, and worthless. Human wealth, intellect, and supposed power is insubstantial compared to God. Worshiping anything other than the Lord God will cast you into darkness. We learned that God is just. The Egyptians are punished for their enslavement, infanticide, and mistreatment of the Hebrews. We are shown God's mercy. We are given a foretaste of the redemptive power of Jesus Christ through the Passover. We'll end with a prayer here. Dear Lord, we thank you for the demonstration of your power over worldly ideas and worldly religions, that you are supreme and that you are in control of this earth. We thank you that you have a way to redeem us through Jesus Christ, and we thank you that this has been your plan from the beginning. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.